there's been a lot of destruction. There's been a lot of falling away. That's what happened. Because my whole world was church, church, church. And when I came out, a lot of people sort of scattered. Um, and now I have a new opportunity to build my chosen family and to connect with people and show them me. Hello and welcome to Out Loud. Out Loud is a podcast by and for queer people of faith in the South. Here we tell our stories of varied religious upbringings, messy coming outs, and the gift of community with one another. The voice you just heard was Kashif Andrew Graham. My conversation with Kashif ebbs and flows through his experience of coming out to his Pentecostal family and friends, as well as other institutions here in the South. In what he refers to as his deliverance years, Kashif has gone from praying that God would change his sexuality to thanking God for being gay. His story is one of moving away from shame and into acceptance, with strong doses of reality that are refreshingly punctuated by laughter. As a librarian for religion and theology at Vanderbilt University's Divinity Library, Kashif carries a reverence for the written word. He reminded me of that old adage that you are what you read, and he shares with us the story of how the small but powerful gesture of handing a book to someone at just the right moment has the power to change us at our core. Kashif identifies as a queer Jamaican-American with the gender pronouns he, him, his. If you want to view the transcript or learn more about the resources mentioned in this episode, head on over to outloudstories.com while you're listening. And while you're there, take a look at our new partners page. We want to make sure that churches hear our stories and that you know about churches that are open and affirming to you attending their services. That's why we're partnering with churches throughout Middle Tennessee and listing them on our site for you to see. If you know of a church that should be on our list, reach out and let us know. Just visit outloudstories.com partners to learn more. And now, let's hear from Kashif Andrew Graham. So, welcome to the show, Kashif. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. It's great to have you. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, I want to just kind of dive right in. Can you tell me about your faith just growing up? Mm-hmm. So... I grew up Church of God, Pentecostal. Oh. Um, now there's a Church of God, that the head office, which is actually here in the state of Tennessee, in Cleveland, Tennessee. Um, but the Jamaican Church of God is has all these sort of different flavors, if you will. Um, much more, I think, um, emotive, um, a lot more emphasis on, uh, you know, what you're wearing and, and all of that. Um, so... My the faith of my childhood was really colorful. It was um, it was jumping and shouting. It was faith in action. It was handing out tracts. We were at church all the time, and um, faith was everything. As like teenagers, we fasted when the church was having fasting and prayer. Um, when I say we, I mean my sisters and I. Uh, so faith was it was real. It wasn't just um, sort of sequestered into one day but it was a, a lifestyle mm -hmm. is what we would have said mm -hmm. then yeah was there like a a spiritual leader in your family like someone who was like oh, really kind of reining it in for you guys mm -hmm. 
Sister Esther, my mother, <laughs> my mother was a spiritual leader. Lord have mercy. I mean, oh God, Greg, I could tell you. Even I remember being back in Jamaica um, and my mother, we were in this country church and I didn't know. I had never seen my mother preach before, but I remember mm. I was sitting in the pew. There were like 10 pews, maybe less than that. Uh, and I look up and there's my mo- my mother with her hair tied in a bun and she had a, a robe on and she was preaching something about uh, being locked in to the plane and taking off, no turning back. We'd hear her um, uh, in the evenings praying in the living room, crying out from her belly, Adam, where art thou? Adam. I mean, whatever. It could be anything. And it's like. You know, how are you going to sit in your room and smoke weed when your mother is praying like that in the living room? You can't do that. (laughs) But my mother is definitely the spiritual leader. Definitely. Wow. Mm -hmm. Wow. And so what did um, and what I like, what effect did that have on on you and like your faith over time? I mean, did that did that rub off on you? You know, it's interesting because um, I remember going through this text now. Let's see if I can remember it. But I believe it was Birth of the Living God, Anna, Anna Maria Rizzuto. Um, where she talks about the deconstruction uh, of your image of God. And I realized that my mother was the image of God for me. And so um, my parents are very conservative and um, dealing with working through my sexuality. There was a point in time where I thought, okay, this is just something I'm struggling with. And if I try hard enough, if I can sort of, quote unquote, stay pure, stay clean from having what I said then was a homosexual thought, um, I I could, you know, be free. And so my mother, of course, very much supported this. Uh, and whenever I felt like whenever something happened, you know, if I if I didn't, quote unquote, do particularly well that day, I would feel that God was upset with me but that God was doing sort of the passive aggressive things um, that my mother did. And Mm -hmm. it's very interesting that I didn't realize that had been the case until I came to seminary and started to unpack all of that. And I thought, oh my God, yeah, my mother was was definitely um, growing up the image of God for me. So when were you asking questions about your sexuality? Was that when you were living at home and under, under your mom's roof? Yeah, uh, with my parents, I think. So for me, I sort of um, just because I I love literature and I'm a librarian and um, but I look at my life as a sort of three major sections, if you will. This will change in the future. But there are what I call the early years, um, which are up until sort of birth until maybe about uh, 12 or 13 and then there's the deliverance years, which is from 14 to 23. And then there's uh, present day, if you will. Um, but the deliverance years, that was, I mark that, that sort of uh, um, cut out for me uh, in the sense that that was the time in which I started to seek healing mm-hmm. for my brokenness mm-hmm. and seek deliverance. And so I talk about you know, I might say at the beginning of the deliverance years or the height of the deliverance years, um, which was when I went for a year and a half without masturbating. But for me, and, and when I realized that how unhealthy um, some of my behaviors were, mm. um, that's when I started to ask about other ways of living because I was miserable. Yeah. 
And I thought, you know, every summer I'm not going to be able to stare at, I'm not going to be able to continue this business of looking at the ground because I don't want to lust with my eyes. And, Mm -hmm. you know, um, it was a very, very uh, difficult time. But it was also my journey had always been very public uh, in the sense that because I come from a community that believes that testifying is how you get your healing. Mm. I had to, quote unquote, I had to talk about what I was dealing with. And so during testimony service, I said these things out loud. Now, you know, the community that I grew up in and many Jamaican communities are not only, um, you know, homophobic, but dangerously so. That, you know, in Jamaica, you could still be be killed for being gay. I mean, that it's it's um, not a pretty situation. Yeah. But I had to, you know, I opened out and shared a lot of things that I was dealing with. Um, And I think that people. I would say that it was good and bad in that it marked me for certain people that I wouldn't be good enough for their daughters because I was, you know, sullied. Um, or I could never be a real man. Uh, and so, yeah, it was it was very challenging. But I was asking those questions about my sexuality. And from the beginning, from from as yeah. soon as this sort of thing emerged. Um, and you were asking those questions publicly or te- like, yeah, that, that was part of the, yeah. the testimony. Yeah, kind of, it okay. was. It was. And but the thing is that. M- I think that from the time I was very young that my mother in particular knew because mothers know, but she proceeded to say, she, she sort of warned me that this would not be okay. That she said, you know, if I should ever discover this, I would roll over in my grave, things like that. Um, so from the time I discovered this thing that, you know, my sexuality began to, um, was sort of a sapling and sort of broke ground. It was immediately hit by shame. And I knew, okay, I am sexual, but in the wrong way. Mm. Uh, and and so, yeah, that that I lived through that until I, I came to seminary. Mm. Would would you have identified as being gay or being queer then, or was it Mm-mm. just it was more? Was it just more about behavior, and that's what you were, that's what you were admitting? I couldn't. For me, there was no such thing as a gay Christian, right? And. Okay. There, I, there wasn't, there was no option, no. So when, when I talk about asking questions, let me just clarify. It was more about de- a declaration. I, I would say it was less of a question and more of a declaration in the sense that I'm healed, I'm delivered from this. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, maybe I was asking, does God still love me even though I have same-sex attraction mm-hmm. or I have, um, and I didn't even use that term then, yeah. um, even though I'm having these feelings is what yeah. I would say. Yeah. That I, I mean, the amount of time, if I, I need to get that on a t-shirt, these feelings. Uh, <laughs> but, but you know, that's that was probably more of where my questioning was. But I wasn't asking those questions then of whether it was possible to be both queer and a Christian because for me, the answer was no, no. in those years. Yeah. So, okay. yeah. Um, and even I, I remember, I'll tell you this, reading Pursuing Sexual Wholeness, which is Andrew Kamisky's book. Someone actually gave that book to me at church and okay. she sort of came like by night, so to speak, just very quietly and, and, and after Sunday school and took, it was a little book and she placed it into my hand and said, I saw this at a conference and I thought of I you. I thought of you. And oh my gosh, Greg, I read that book and cried. The reason I cried 
was because it was the first time, although, you know, Andrew Kaminsky is um, sort of not affirming in the sense that he does not believe um, that it is possible to be, you know, a sexually active queer Christian. Um, so let me not say non-affirming and put a label on it, but let me just say that our views don't align uh-huh. anymore. But the way that he talked about this business of grieving, mm. and he says in the book, you know, that he went through a period where he would cry in his pillow because he was grieving sort of the lost masculinity. Mm-hmm. And that is somewhat, it's problematic now, but I understood then, the way that I understood it was grieving the lost years mm. that I had spent um, sort of so anxious about every hand movement and gesture and every inflection Um And so when I read that, it gave me permission to cry. And for the first time, I began to cry about my situation. Um, There were a lot of tears, a lot of tears. But it led me down a journey of continuing to read and seek. And ultimately, when I got to seminary uh, and I was in the middle of my seminary journey, that's when I started to have, that's when it, it intensified. Mm. And I was ripping through books, ripping through and finding, you know, um, because the library that I was working at was unfortunately did practice censorship and I couldn't get, they just didn't have certain books. I had to request them by interlibrary loan. And I would say that they were for a paper. They were for a paper. <laughs> they weren't for no paper. They were for me. Cause I would, I would go home and I read those voraciously. Yeah. You know? Yeah. 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 Oh my goodness. Wow. Um, Where I'm really intrigued so far about hearing your story is how similar and different it is to mine in Mm. that, like, in the Catholic Church, there is this this same kind of testimony, if you will, through the sacrament of confession. You go to the priest, you confess your sins, but it's totally private. Mm -hmm. So you can go through this whole journey of are my attractions misguided or whatever. You could go through that whole journey just between you and a... Uh, a priest who can't even talk to you about it afterwards. They are, they are kept, they, they cannot disclose what happens in the confessional. And so it becomes this in, extremely personal and shameful journey. Yeah. Um, and, and yet I feel like we kind of took the same path where it was like, at some point you had to kind of just really dig into what you could find. Like for you, it was, it was all these books yeah. that, yeah. started to open up the answers even though you were like publicly even though you had had confessed this to everyone oh yeah and when, it was and still your journey to kind of find the answer that worked for you i was i wanted it so badly greg i wanted to be straight so badly mm-hmm. i wanted to do what was right i would cry you know this is this this story has hope folks so don't don't stop listening okay <laughs> um but i i would cry by my window in my room in New York and ask God to make me whole Lord make me whole yeah. and God did make me whole yeah. but but that that's coming um, but in the sense that I wanted it so badly and so um, I remain I remember there was a scripture uh, something like the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and he delivers them and I was reading it one night before church and I felt like I needed to say 
I needed to confess in front of my church. And I was the choir director at the time. So before the choir would get up and sing, someone would introduce the song and they would say, the song that we're going to sing for you says Beulah Land, how I love him or something like this. And then the choir would start um, and they would give a short word of exhortation. But for me, that was my opportunity. Yeah. And so in front of, and there was a guest speaker there that day, uh, someone who self-identified as an apostle. Um, and she had a very shock and awe, a very, um, I don't want to use the word wacky, but a very uh, unusual ministry. And I got up in front of everybody, the choir was standing there, and I said, um, I have been healed, I've been delivered from pornography, masturbation, and homosexuality. And when I tell you, Greg, everybody in the church stood up and people were, it was like an eruption. And I remember the minister, she was wearing purple. She had a purple robe and a purple headdress. Um, and she said, all y'all should be up here hugging him right now. And she closed her Bible and said, he preached my sermon. And everybody from the church, I mean, there were lines of people coming down to hug me and people who went to the altar. And it was, for me, although today I look at that and I say, I knew what I really wanted was to be able to accept myself and to be able to be happy. I yeah. just wanted to be happy. I recognized the power in telling the truth and the power in speaking. Mm -hmm. So perhaps my truth wasn't that I had been quote unquote delivered from, but my truth was, this is what I'm dealing with. And I recognize that when I speak, when we speak, when we share our stories, there is a great power in helping people to lead better lives. What I love when I'm, when I'm hearing again and again as they're talking is that you're starting to grab like what you need from your faith and there are things that weren't, that haven't worked for you. Right, right. And instead of, and this has come up in other interviews too, instead of just disowning the whole thing and being like, nope, this church doesn't want me, I'm out. You've found pieces of it that work and I feel like that is it again and again kind of the path that yes. so many of us do take is that faith still means something to us these rituals these practices this prayer whatever it is like there's something about it that that is working mm -hmm. and it's and it's our connection to to the divine yeah. and um i just yeah i love that so with that in mind I'm, I'm curious like what was what was your how would you characterize like your prayer life during this deliverance period oh my that is a that is a heavy question. Heavy, heavy, baby. Well, I would say that prayer for me was about it was all about confession mm -hmm. and asking for help. Mm -hmm. um, I remember reading in there was a psalm that had been translated. I can't remember which translation or paraphrase, but it was something like um, David saying, "I'm wiped out." And I remember that stuck with me because I was in the Bronx at the time as an undergrad at Lehman College. Um, and I mean, it was summer and there were all of these hot men wearing just, you know, tank tops. There was a point in time when I wouldn't even walk by the gym, the rec center, because I was like, somebody's going to walk out with like bulging muscles and I'm 
I'm going to have a thought and I'm not going to be able, you know, I just, I, I, for me, shunning the very appearance of evil, but prayer Mm -hmm. was always, was supplication was, you know, God help me to make it through this day, another day. I want to live pure. That was what prayer was. And I prayed a lot Mm -hmm. because I remember I would, I would come home and lie on my bed and say, I'm wiped out. And for me, that's, as I look back now, I can see where things were cracking. Things were falling apart in the sense that I knew as I was praying that, that this was no way to live, that there was better. There was another way. Mm-hmm. And I think as I reflect on my life, for anybody to ask me to go back to that, I have to shut them down. I can't even entertain that because life, it's, we're supposed to live you know, a life well supplied. And that for me was, it was self-hate and it was Mm -hmm. destructive. Mm -hmm. But, but prayer took the place of continuing to indicate, quote unquote, to tell God that I did not want this lifestyle. I didn't want to be this way to remind God at every chance Mm -hmm. that uh, I wanted to be whole and I, I really needed this. But it was, my life had already been sort of planned out in the sense that it was, you know, you grow up through Sunday school in the Pentecostal churches. You get filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, then it's time for marriage. But this thing was stopping me from going to the next step and moving on with my life and becoming this PTA dad and living in the suburbs with a station wagon. That was my plan. Totally. Okay. I had the, I had the written in my vision book. Um, but, but my being gay was stopping me, this thing at the time. And so I was praying for that to be removed so that I could go on with my life. Mm. So they had, you know, I was at the altar every Sunday. They would have what they called ministry moment and I would go down. And I, at every single chance I got, I would ask people if they said, was there any, is there anything I can pray for you about? I, I shared or asked them to, you know, pray for strength for me. That, that's, that's what prayer was. So, Getting back to kind of what sounded like your coming out journey, um, kind of taking a turn at seminary. Mm-hmm. What what was like the books that you were reading then? What was starting to shift then? So it's interesting. I think the first thing was being away from my family and the community that I had known. Yeah. Because for the first time, I was able to get into my own head and think, what are my, how do I really feel about things? Mm-hmm. I wasn't so enmeshed and I was away and I would get on the back roads and drive to all these, through all these small towns in East Tennessee and face myself. Um, I think that that's where things started. So I mentioned uh, the birth of the living God, Anna Maria Rizzuto. Um, I was reading Velvet Rage. Uh, oh my gosh, there are so many. How to Survive a Summer, uh, Boy Erased. Uh, God and the Gay Christian, of course. So I think reading those things, and I was able to, I did have one faculty member at when I was in seminary that no longer works at the seminary. So (laughs) that's don't try anything, y'all. But, you know, he, uh, he was very, very supportive. And it's interesting because, so we were at this restaurant and I was, I wanted to sort of, start to come out to him um i wasn't out to myself though 
but I, I guess I was. But I wanted to share with him where I was in my journey. Yeah. And he yeah. had been sort of the nutty professor for me when I took his first, uh, took my first semester in seminary and I took a class with him. And I was like, what on earth is this guy talking about? Like, just he was saying things that were so new to me. Like, what if some, you know, passages or things in the Old Testament our stories are not factual but are meant to inspire faith and I was like yeah. what 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 I was like losing my mind like this guy's a devil how is he here at, at the Pentecostal Theological Seminary and you know he was the one that I went to and we had dinner and uh, I was struggling and he said i you you want it, you have to make this decision. What he said, what I'm feeling from you is that you have to make this decision and you want to do the right thing, but you don't know how. And I want to tell you that there are bounds, but the bounds are not nearly as, as narrow as we have made them. Mm. And I remember that thing, that opened a world for me. That opened a world for me. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean... And he he made himself available. He was the same one that later on in my journey, when I was wondering about dating and like trying to say, I don't really know how to do this, especially because I was in Cleveland. Okay, it's just Cleveland, Tennessee. It's <laughs> I know nothing about Cleveland, Tennessee. It's, it's kind just... of slim pickings there. I'm just going to be <laughs> honest. Okay, nice people, nice people, but it's kind of slim pickings. So... <laughs> You got to go to Chattanooga if you're looking for, you know. You got to set that radius really (laughs) wide. (laughs) You do. I'm like, you got to go 100 miles. That's (laughs) (laughs) it. But he was the one that I went to with my concerns. And he said to me um, that goodness is, is it will find you. And I thought, wow, that's something that stayed with me. Goodness will find you. So, you know, I was in the middle of my journey asking these questions. I I should also mention that my, luckily enough, so I had been to a couple of different churches. And the last church that I attended, the pastor was also on faculty at the seminary. Mm -hmm. And he was the first person that I ever uttered uttered those words to, that Mm -hmm. I ever said, I am gay and a Christian. But it started with a question. So we we had a conversation over a number of weeks is it possible to be both queer and a Christian? Now, I have to say this. Keep listening, folks. Um, I was going to gay conversion therapy at that time. Oh, wow. I was going to gay conversion therapy, and I was in Chattanooga. And uh, I, when he found out, I didn't know what was happening at the time, but we had breakfast, and I told him that I was going to see this counselor. Um, and he didn't really like it. And I was wondering why, because I thought you are a Church of God pastor, like you should be. I mean, he didn't grow up in the Church of God, but like you're pastor of Church of God Church. You should be. You on should board. be like, yeah, you should be on board. You should be like giving me a ribbon or something, you know. And he said to me, he was trying to get me to see somebody else, which I thought was very interesting. Mm. And he said, maybe they don't necessarily have to be a person of faith. I didn't know at the time he's saying this. I'm, I'm saying, what is this guy talking about? He's a pastor, you yeah. know. But he said that to me, and I remember we were there in in small town USA, and I'm thinking, this is kind of odd. So when I, I, but I that morning also I I was planning to sort of pro- profess to him that I was healed because I was still that was the ending of the deliverance years. Mm. But 
I was still there and I said to him and he said, well, let's not be too quick to put a label on anything. And and that kind of though threw me into a tailspin because I wanted this to be over. I wanted to move on. I had a young lady that I you know had been waiting on me in New York and I was just concerned I was going to lose her, even though she wasn't really waiting on me. But so I wanted that to be over and uh, he wouldn't let me which is interesting and it was it ended up being the most helpful thing that he said to me he started small there were baby steps Mm -hmm. let's not put a label on this why don't you see somebody Mm -hmm. else the small suggestions um and i did go and see somebody else and she was a a southern belle uh that is in the church of god and i got in to see her and sat on her couch and i remember she just in the in the sweetest voice said to me, honey, I just want to tell you there is nothing wrong with you. And that was that was deliverance for me. Uh, yeah, that was deliverance. There you go. That was a that was a moment of breaking because in, in, in all my years at that point, no one had ever said that to me. Mm-hmm. No one uh. had ever said that to me. Nothing is wrong with you. And I, and I will sort of sort of uh, add as a disclaimer or qualify that that maybe if 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 there were one or two people that did I couldn't hear them because I had this sort of evangelical gook in my ears that yeah. I couldn't you know I wasn't able that to see myself just turned up too loud. oh yeah oh yeah. yeah so but when she said that that's when things started to to break for me <sighs> yeah god bless her oh yeah it it is an amazing experience to sit with someone that listens to you and doesn't think that because of your sexuality, you're inherently sinful. Yeah. It's, uh, it's freeing. I mean, it's, it's huge to like actually, to actually have the courage at that stage to, to even admit that I'm gay or I'm even like having these feelings. That is so, it, 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 it takes so much courage to say that to someone. And then when somebody basically says i have to tell you as though it's like i don't know like they're an insurance agent and they're reading a clause or something like i <laughs> like have your miranda to tell you, rights or something yeah, yeah. like they, they're mirandizing <laughs> you like hello you know they have to tell you that that you're gonna go to hell and it's just like no and and the sad part though i have to say is that when i did come out um which was on my blog uh in 2017 december 2nd 2017 which is pretty recent yeah this has been a journey. You're this about is... as new on the block as I am. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. It's just gone so quickly. But yeah, um, yeah I when I came out, there were people who responded in that way, that yeah. they were like, they felt obligated. And it's interesting because they didn't tell me that right away. Mm-hmm. For some of them, I think I was reflecting on this the other day. I was trying to go on as though things were sort of okay or hadn't changed because I thought that they knew. Because towards the end of my journey, I was not trying to hide. I stopped sort of self-censoring and I let myself be me. Mm. And I would say things like, honey, or whatever, you know, whatever I felt like saying. And it's interesting because then there's some people who are like, someone literally said it to me that they had no idea. I thought, okay, I know we're in the South, but if somebody's saying to you like, honey, and like flipping their wrist, I mean, come on, come on. I was trying to signal to you, you know. Yeah. Um, so it, it's very interesting, though, that that I think that they wanted to they felt that maybe I was too comfortable with them. Mm-hmm. And so then those things started to emerge slowly. Uh, one person said to me, I'm sorry, I can't. I, I 
can't come to your hypothetical wedding or I don't know if I could come to your hypothetical wedding. Um, you know, one person felt that she needed to warn me that, you know, when she was in the homosexual lifestyle, that it was filled with drugs and this and that. And I thought, what has happened to critical reasoning? Hmm. What what happened to us being able to delineate and look at our life and say, this was my sexuality. These are the substances I took. But I know that, th- I mean, that's how she has thought about, that's what she thought about her journey. And, and uh, that's up to her. But it was very interesting that it took time for some of those things to emerge. Yeah. From people yeah. that I knew and loved. And that mm-hmm. was the hardest. When you went into seminary, what was kind of your, what was your kind of objective of going into seminary professionally, I guess? And how did that shift by the time you were done? So that's, this is a great question. Um, I went to seminary because I had a lot of questions and my plan was to go into full-time ministry and I was going to be a children's pastor. Mm. And so... I was reading all these books about family, and I remember my mother was the one that, that mentioned it to me that said, you know, I, I think you'd make a fabulous children's pastor. And I thought, yeah, okay. I discovered while I was there, number one, I served at a children's camp in Mentone, Alabama. I mean, that was, it was it was a travesty. I was like, I, I realized, I was like, I can't stand these kids. <laughs> I, it's not that I don't want kids. I mean, one or two kids for me to take care of, it that's a different story. But to be a children's pastor and to offer them the the care and the attention that they needed um, in in such formational years, I, 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 I wasn't at the place to offer that. Yeah, you got to be on board for that. I, I, and I, I just thought I couldn't do it. And not to mention, we were at, at a Bible camp where... Um, they apparently, I, I guess they didn't believe in caffeine or something like this. And so somebody had to go down the mountain because I went to the director and I was like, excuse me, you're not going to have me here for a whole week with like decaf, you know, basically serving me like burnt corn husks and not even real coffee. I was so angry. I, I take my coffee very seriously. So somebody had to go down the mountain and I had to go to Walmart and got coffee, got regular coffee and it was fine. But I realized that that wasn't my calling. I wonder now how much of that was the coffee. How much of your life has been determined by coffee? Yeah, well, seriously, come on. Even the man I will marry is going to be turned by coffee, okay? Um, so, okay, that was the one thing. The second thing was being in seminary and, again, talking about the deconstruction. I, I mentioned this book so much, The Birth of the Living God, but it was really the class, Human Growth and Transformation. And talking about the deconstruction of the image of God, I realized that it had been my mother who, in her own disappointments in my father and and and, and the men in the community, they were always that was a, a large part of the the that that que- uh, appeared quite frequently in the rhetoric um, was you know men who abdicated their priesthood in the home and so on and so forth, which was then informed by a larger conversation, conservative conversation about the breakdown of the black family. So we see where these things sort of seep into the church. And 
um, I think that my mother, rather than address those concerns head on, um, sort of placed pressure on me to say, well, you know, you'd be a good children's pastor. You need to be a hero for your sister, so on and so forth. And I never realized what that was doing to me that placed a lot of unnecessary weight uh, on me. And so I was in seminary and I remember I remember being outside of the, the, the dorms, the apartments and in my car crying on the phone. And it was very late at night. And I said it to her that I never wanted to do this. I never wanted to become a children's pastor. I didn't mm. I didn't want to do that. That was you. And I I'm I now looking back sort of in ret- in retrospect and reverie, I'm surprised at the clarity that I had. I never I never really realized that until this moment. Such clarity that I was I mean I I'm and I'm also such boldness. Actually it's because I was in Tennessee that I was able to pick up the phone and say that to my Jamaican mother because she couldn't smack me in the face. But <laughs> but um <laughs> but but it, it, you know I did have clarity in that moment because I was away again and reflecting, looking back on where I had come from. I think that that sort of broke things apart for me that I realized okay I am not going to go into children's ministry. I was still thinking of going into some sort of ministry. And, and at that point, I thought, well, I really wanted to be a writer. That's what I, I really wanted to do. But I, I it took me a while to sort of um, make my way there. So to sort of to, to fast forward to the end of my seminary journey, uh, May of 2017. Actually, this was March that I was on the phone with my mother and I remember saying to her, I was outside of the library because I was working in the library at the time. I was outside of the library um, and I was standing in the parking lot and I said, I'm going to do another master's and I'm going to do a master of science and information science through the University of Tennessee at Knoxville. <laughs> and my mother was like, are you sure you want to do that? Because for her, the fact that I did not, I was not going pursuing ordination was like I was a failure, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, yeah. and and for for her becoming a librarian was like what on earth? Like she just that was not, you know, for her it came out of left field. Mm. Um, although libraries had always been safe places for me throughout school and all of that. Yeah. Um. So my decision was then that I would become a theological librarian, uh, because I learned about this business of theological librarianship as ministry. That moved me. It's faith-seeking understanding. Totally. You know? Yeah. yeah. Um, and so the, the, the person comes to you and you offer them the resource. And then you sort of carry them as they wrestle with the text. Mm-hmm. So I do think that librarians are ubiquitous, should be ubiquitous to the research process. But theological librarians, I think, carry the students in a certain way. Because we understand. I understand that when I slide you know, a book across the table, so to speak, to you. I know the weight because I've been there. Yeah. Because I remember what happened when I was reading all of this and I was in seminary and I thought I was going crazy. And there was a professor that said, this is the wonderful thing though about going to a Pentecostal seminary. There was sort of always a divine word that somebody could be teaching mm-hmm. and they would break out into something in just a second. Like yeah. they would break out into a, a, a 30 second sermon. And so she said, you know, you feel like you feel faithless. You feel like God is dead, that Christ is dead for you. But I have a word for you. Stay at the tomb. Oh, that word could that could make me shout right now, y'all, right here in Nashville, Tennessee. I mean, she, that's what she said. Stay at the tomb. 
And I understood what she was saying. She said, you feel like your faith is being deconstructed, but I have a word for you. Stay at the tomb. And um, so that was that was so important. And I I know that that's what students at Vanderbilt Divinity School, at any theological, you know, uh, school for theological education that they're dealing with that. And as a librarian, I'm aware of like the implications of like, I'm handing this to you, but this may break you. You you're going to have to wrestle with this. And Mm -hmm. so. I think of that as ministry. Uh. It's dialogue. And even as you, like I had a student come to me the other day yeah. and I, I sat back and I said to her, I was like, what do you really want to ask? Yeah. There's something that you are being told that you feel like you should want to ask, but that you don't care about that. I don't, mm-hmm. from what the vibes that I'm getting from, you don't care about that. There is something that you really want to ask. Go for that because mm. then you'll be able to sustain like you're you're actually going to be interested in that yeah. you know but that that's definitely the work of a librarian and when it comes to the yeah. theological disciplines i think more so because we are discerners we are thinkers that we the the, the word so to speak and it, with a capital w rolls around in our brains and we think what does that mean you know um even the other day i was walking in the the belmont hillsborough area and this this scripture um came back to me to walk in the newness of life. And it just, it, it was rolling around in my brain. And I thought to myself, wow, we used to, I used to think about that as like becoming a Christian and now, you know, tossing out your weed and your alcohol or Mm -hmm. whatever. And now I think about that as like my, this is a new sense about life. Yeah. I have a new perspective. My vision has been, um, has been given to me, has been adjusted so that I can see, I feel like I'm seeing rightly with more clarity than I have ever seen before. And that makes life new. And so I walk in that newness every day. Yeah. I mean, and I feel like that newness, I feel like I've, I experienced that newness in two different ways. One, basically like ever since I came out, there's been that newness yeah. of just like, this is my identity, like slowly kind of letting that be a part of my identity and and seeing the world through uh, the lens of of being a gay man but then there's also this you know after the the excitement of coming out kind of wears off mm. then there's the newness too of just of being open to something new happening every day of constantly staying curious about things yes. too that is just so important as we all go on to work our nine to five jobs and have routines that we get settled in to like embrace and be open to the new well then and the newness there was someone who um a therapist who talked about second adolescence yes Mm -hmm. and i thought that that was so powerful i wrote a poem actually about it that was like um it was like learning to breathe again because Again, this life is so new in, 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 in quite in fact, because I never I was never allowed like my having a crush on a guy wasn't OK. So I never let myself feel the butterflies mm-hmm. when I had just a casual crush or when I would see a guy and go. Wow, you know, yeah. <laughs> and, and now that's OK. Right. And I don't it's normal. It's right. healthy. Yes. If you are sexual, you know, you might be asexual and have other ways of, you know, but. I mean, I, 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 so in, in many ways, this, this is the newness of life. This is another adolescence. This is like, and then there's also like the anxiety and the fear that comes in. That's normal of, um, will my crush reciprocate? 
you know, mm-hmm. um, will I will I meet someone? Will I get a date to this particular thing? You know, it, it's it's so new, and it's I'm right now I'm navigating all of that, and there are, sometimes I feel like I'm behind. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. there are times when I feel like just because in two thousand this it's so new two thousand seventeen, there are times when I feel like I meet so many gay men that are so beyond. And that know all of these words and know how to do this and know this position and that position. I'm like, you put that where? <laughs> I'm like, I'm not gonna put that there. Like, give me another year, maybe. But you know, it, it there it, there's definitely another like this is this is the newness, and I've just learned to take a deep breath and let myself go at the pace that I'm going. Yeah, because I am building a life that I don't want to run away from. Mm-hmm. Um. And that's the most important thing. That's my gauge. Hmm. And every decision that I make is this in service of the life that I wish to lead, of this newness of life. Um, is this in service of that? And and is this in service of me building a life that I don't want to run away from? Yeah. A life that I'm proud of. Yeah. And I am. I am building a life that I'm proud of. Yeah. Yeah. would you characterize your faith and your prayer life now that's such a good question you know i do something i like to call morning centering morning centering could be anything in the sense that it could be i usually will get up and i have i start to try to be thankful that i'm in a body that i'm awake and i start trying to get there I, I, I really have to stick away from the devil Instagram in the mornings. I try not to start clicking <laughs> on things and looking at who who didn't like my what and who didn't like this. Yeah, you, it just, you know. it's like a slippery slope yeah, for the Yeah, because then you start looking that. through and you're like, she she wanted to post that? Oh, okay, girl. You know, no. So I, it just get you don't want those negative <laughs> thoughts early in the morning. But uh, <laughs> but um, I, I start to – so I go to the kitchen. I have coffee going. With the scent of the coffee in the house, I start to think of um, – what I'm thankful for, I start to, whatever thoughts emerge. And that is what prayer looks like to me now. It could be anything, mm-hmm. but it's about something growing. I just sit there and let it grow, you know, yeah. something. And it, it, I feel like that time could take me anywhere. Um, I have presence. That was the thing that came out of that morning centering. I have presence. I matter. When I walk into a room things change in the sense that there's somebody new in the room. I have presence. Why Why is it that for so long, I never, I wasn't thinking about that I, because I was so focused on not being noticed. Mm-hmm. on you know, yeah. just trying to seem as like, not as little a disturbance to the atmosphere as possible. And during my morning centering, it was sort of like an undoing of that. I have presence. I matter. So that's what prayer is for me. Um, I pray in the car a lot. Um, I drive on the back roads and I I pray aloud. Um, I like to record videos of myself and I'm just talking through whatever I need to talk through. Yeah. And sometimes it's me working out a problem and then it may go into a prayer. So I'm in the car and I have my video and I have whatever and I tell myself the truth, how I really feel about something. And usually from there, I can like, you know, make a decision that's in service that I'm standing in my truth. 
Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. But that's all prayer. Prayer is all of those things for me. It is, and it can be, I might go into Benton Chapel at the Vanderbilt Divinity School and kneel down in there and pray. I, I pray anywhere. Mm-hmm. You know, I really believe in that. So yeah. prayer is is a broad, beautiful thing for me. That is, it's it's for me. And it's for me to be aware of others' needs, aware of my own needs. Yeah. I, I still love to pray, which is, but I'm not begging God to not make me gay anymore. I'm thanking God for making me gay. Seriously. Yeah. That's, that's the new sort of thing. Yeah. Hmm. Is there anything else that you would like to share that we didn't get to? You know, I think that we are constantly becoming and we are constantly growing. And as I said before, I I think it bears repeating this business of building a life that you don't want to run away from leading or working in service of the highest possible calling. I hope that there I will continue to connect with people that um, that are about their business and are uh, getting in touch with what they feel like they are here for, what they feel like they are called to do. And those are the people that I want, you know, in my inner circle. It's there's been a lot of carnage. There's been a lot of destruction. There's been a lot of falling away. That's what happened because my whole world was church, church, church. And when I came out, a lot of people sort of scattered. Um, And now I have a new opportunity to build my chosen family Mm. and to connect with people and show them me. I love this statement that I wrote when I was in Vancouver, uh, that Keegan, one of the other librarians, and I talked about this at length. um, I I was writing my pride post and she took the picture. That's why we're talking about it. Uh, My life is like a movie. And I said, Starring Kashif Graham in brackets, finally, as himself. <laughs> and it's the most amazing thing. Yeah. I get to be me. Yeah. I get to be me. And whenever I get into a situation that I feel like someone is trying to push me back and dim my light, I fight for that. I have learned to fight, to be me, to express myself authentically. And I am so excited for the opportunity to just show myself to the world that I don't have to hide anything. I could just be me. Um, and then when people connect with me, I know it's, they've seen me, you know, that yeah. they've seen me. And that's, that's the most important thing to me. So thank you. Thank you for having me here. Thank you so much for being you and for coming on the show. A special thanks to Kashif for coming on the show. You can find him on Instagram at Kashif Andrew Graham. You'll find that link in the show notes along with other resources mentioned in this episode. I'm your host, Greg Thompson. Our editor is Cariad Harmon, and our theme music is by J.P. Rajiri. We recorded this episode here in Nashville, Tennessee at the We Own This Town studio. And a special thanks this week to Patreon members Megan Lyons, Luke DeBoer, Lauren Peacock, and Meg McKellen for their support. Remember, you can become a member and get access to exclusive digital content and merchandise starting at just $1 a month. Learn more at patreon.com outloudstories. You can also leave us a one-time donation over on Venmo at outloudstories. And if you haven't already, please be sure to leave us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. It makes a huge difference. And while you're there, 
hit that subscribe button so you get the latest episodes right when they drop. For more updates, you can find us on social media at OutLoudStories, and you can sign up for our email newsletter on our website at OutLoudStories.com. We'll be back in two weeks with a new episode. In the meantime, remember friends, queer people have faith lives too. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. Thanks for listening. Thank you.